Psychological operations, military deception, information operations are not new. They've been around since biblical times. What's new, of course, is the conduct of those activities in this relatively new warfighting domain of cyberspace. We've got to be agile because the information environment, cyberspace, is changing all the time. There's a new piece of malware on the street every 7 to 12 seconds. G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Now, those comments you just heard were from Major General Marcus Thompson, and we will be back to hear more from him right after this message. 2017. He's not just a soldier, but also a scholar with multiple master's degrees and a PhD in cybersecurity. And just a reminder that due to the ongoing pandemic, we are not in the studio today, so those accustomed to high standards of audio quality from the National Security Podcast will need to bear with us. Uh, and as, thing, as soon as things open back up, we will, of course, return to the studio. But in the meantime, let's continue our chat with Marcus Thompson. Major General Thompson, welcome to the National Security Podcast. G'day, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I thought I'd start with an easy question to, to ease us into this game, and that is around the, the notion of the term information warfare. I suppose to the average uh, Aussie, IW, information warfare, could sound a little Orwellian at first glance. How would you describe what it is that uh, your division um, is setting out to do uh, in everyday language? Oh goodness me, Catherine! There's a there's a bit to that. Um, look, when the when the division was created in 2017, um, my marching orders at the time were to grip up uh, cyber, electronic warfare, uh, intelligence, information operations, um, command and control, and, and bring all of those military functions together into something coherent that could be used by the the chief of joint operations, and that was. That was for two very good reasons. One is it was, you know, as many of your uh, listeners will will recall, it was a key recommendation uh, out of the first principles review, 
uh, from 2015 that uh, that talked that that identified that some of these capabilities perhaps um, that don't neatly sit within the Navy, the Army, or the Air Force that, that those cap- some of those capabilities might not have received the uh, the attention that they um, that they were due. Uh, but secondly, and, and um, you know perhaps more importantly, it's just it's it's a reflection of the, of the character of of contemporary conflict, that uh, the information is at the centre of everything we do. Now, some would argue that that's always been the case, that psychological operations, that military deception, that information operations are not new. They've been around since biblical times. What's new, of course, is the conduct of those activities in this relatively new warfighting domain of cyberspace. Can I just ask then, so we've had, I'm not very good at maths, 2017, this is the the third year then of the, the life of, of IW. Perhaps could you detail for us some of the hurdles or challenges in that time that um, have been important to coalesce all of these functions together, the cyber, the EW, and, and really grip them up, or, or indeed um, some of the biggest changes uh, that have occurred as a result of the new division coming into existence? Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, I'll start by saying you know, change is hard and the creation of Information Warfare Division and its uh, positioning, you know, within uh, the Australian Defence Force headquarters, uh, you know, was, was welcomed by some and, quite frankly, at the time, uh, resisted by others. I have on my... Um, on my wall in my office, a, a quote from Niccolo Machiavelli that says that the innovator has for enemies all those who did well under the old system, but lukewarm defenders in those who might do well under the new. And that was certainly my experience as we as we stood up uh, Information Warfare Division um, and and sought to re-energise these uh, information-related capabilities for the Australian Defence Force that, quite frankly, had atrophied over some years. Um, and of course, in, in this day and age, uh, with the proliferation of technology, the real emergence of threats and opportunities in cyberspace, of course, it puts us in a complex policy environment and a complex capability uh, environment. And, and of course, you know, it should be no surprise to anyone that there were both supporters and detractors uh, when we were when we stood up in in 2007. I'll, I'll say, I mean, I've said this publicly. I don't mind saying it again. That you know, when we stood up in 2017, there were people in in senior people in defence who 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 thought that the Australian Defence Force had had no role to play in cyberspace. And uh, uh, you know, you, you asked me about what what has changed, uh, the big changes in in the past three years. I'd say it's that. I mean, there is now no doubt that the Australian Defence Force has a role to play in cyberspace. And in fact, having cyber capabilities within the Australian Defence Force is essential for the Australian Defence Force to to survive, fight and win um, in the contemporary battle space. It's interesting you say that, you know, at first perhaps it was thought cyber sat somewhere outside of defence. Increasingly, it seems that a lot of maybe what we would call unconventional threats are coming into the mandate and mission of the ADF and information and cyber capabilities are obviously one big bucket of unconventional threats. But, you know, I mentioned in the intro that we're all at home at the moment because of the coronavirus and 
Australia this year has faced a number of different unconventional threats in the security space, not least of which is the ongoing um, COVID-19 crisis. But of course, we are still in a recovery phase from a really significant bushfire crisis over the end of 2019 and 2020. And those two crises together, I think, have sparked a lot of debate in Australia about what national security is, and also the role of the ADF. Both crises, um, the ADF has been involved um, in the bushfires, particularly in the recovery phase, and also now um, with COVID-19, we've seen the ADF asked by the government to help out with some quarantine procedures and even some um, manufacturing of key goods. From someone who is not necessarily in those two areas, but is responsible for coordinating the ADF's response to a huge area of unconventional threats. Um, And threats, as you said before, which touch not just on the geopolitical stuff, but also kind of on the real world stuff of technology and how people use it. Um, Are there lessons that you are drawing right now in real time from these two big crises and Australia's response to them this year? Oh, there's there's plenty of lessons being captured and, and applied on a on a minute by minute, if not day by day basis at the moment. Uh, but it's a it's a cracking question that you raise, uh, Catherine, and, and it's and it's one it's one that has been on my mind for some time. And that is, what is the role, or what are the expectations of the Australian Defence Force in defending? The homeland defending Australia in the information environment and in cyberspace. I mean, I, I've been, I was asking that question uh, well before these most recent crises that you referred to of the bushfires and the COVID-19 crisis as well. And of course, we've seen through the bushfires and we've seen through the, the COVID-19 uh, response an increasing uh, trend, if you like, uh, for the Australian Defence Force to be used as part of the of the national response. And, I, and I'll, I'll say up front that the men and women of the Australian Defence Force who participated in that um, the bushfire response and are still participating in the bushfire recovery uh, and are literally, as we speak, uh, supporting in some way, shape or form the national response to the COVID-19 crisis, that uh, to a person, to a person, they are loving it um, because it's one of those rare occasions where members of the ADF actually get to deploy in support of Australians. Normally, and certainly my experience has been, you know, we'd deploy um, to some other part of the world and uh, to to help someone else, to help a, help a foreign people. As important a task as that is, um, supporting Australians is is a rare privilege. And I know that all of the members of the ADF who are currently deployed um, in a domestic setting are uh, acutely aware of that. But it does make me wonder, um, well, it does just cause me to keep asking the question about, you know, what might the expectations of the ADF be? In what might be a cyber pearl harbour, I think was the phrase that uh, that Secretary of that the Secretary of Home Affairs Mike Pizzullo used um, during a Senate estimates hearing last year during 2019. I just wonder what the expectations might be because, of course, there are sensible and appropriate constitutional and legal constraints uh, that uh, around using the military in a domestic setting. Yeah, these are entirely sensible, entirely appropriate constraints. Um, but I, I do just wonder with uh, if we think about a large scale, you know, beyond your normal run-of-the-mill cybersecurity events, and and some of them, some of that makes the news, and some of it doesn't. But I do wonder if the if the threat came at scale, 
you know, to, to use Secretary Pozzullo's phrase, a cyber pearl harbour, you know, what might the expectations of the ADF be? Now, I don't have a view, Catherine, um, but, uh, but I do think it's a, it's a fascinating question and I do think it's an important question for the nation to, uh, and, and interested strategists and policymakers uh, to discuss. Can I just draw you out on that for a moment? Um, so the notion of a cyber pearl harbour that is a term that's been thrown around. The earliest I think I can find is the mid-1990s in the US with fears of an imminent cyber Pearl Harbor. And these fears have never eventuated. Now, I know that if you read the tea leaves, there seems to be an uptick in states using cyber to achieve strategic effects. Um, but is the notion of this kind of a, you know, we're about to, at some point, we could fall off a cliff and have a, a major cyber attack perpetuated against us, is that a slightly overblown fear? Or to put it another way, if we're not afraid of a, – a state would need to have a clear reason in order to, to – a nation state in order to aggress against Australia in such a significant way. Um, should we be focusing our efforts on cyber Pearl Harbors or are the actual threats perhaps less sexy than a Pearl Harbor but things like disinformation or just – own goals from poor cyber hygiene, are they equally or if not more important? Oh, I think they're all important. I mean, I mean, you, 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 you just made the comment that, um, that, that, that a cyber Pearl Harbor hasn't occurred. Well, Pearl Harbor hadn't occurred until Pearl Harbor occurred. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I don't think that's just because something hasn't occurred uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider the possibility and consider what our response might be in in such a uh, in such a circumstance. Um, uh, is that more important than run of the mill cyber security or what some people refer to as cyber hygiene? Um, uh, no, um, that's just as important. Is the threat of misinformation and uh, and fake news also valid and important? Well, I, I think that kind of speaks for itself. There's plenty of commentary in, in open source media about disinformation and misinformation, if you like. But, but I'll, I, I will say, again, this is not new. And, and uh, the, the pursuit of influence is, uh, is, is not the sole domain of malign foreign actors. I mean, marketeers or marketers use particular techniques to, to generate a purchasing behaviour. Advertisers seek to generate a, a particular behaviour by inducing uh, responses through particular, particular messaging. And of course, with the, the seemingly exponential growth of cyberspace and, and use of cyberspace, is those actions from you know, the likes of advertisers and marketers can be, can be quite can be quite specific and and uh, you know geographically and demographically, you know, and and that can easily design content that might only be seen by a particular age group, uh, with a particular from a particular employment group, uh, with a particular political leaning in a particular location, and uh, it, we see advertisers doing that. Um, I think it's probably reasonable that we think about um, how malign foreign actors might use similar techniques. Can I just draw you out on that for a moment? I think it's interesting that you point out that a lot of the uh, wrinkles in the information environment that we have are caused not just by technology, but also by the business models of technology makers and technology users that sit on top of that. And so if you know, we're talking about 
disinformation and micro-targeting, as as you were alluding to yeah. here, the canonical case of Russian interference in US politics, particularly around the 2016 presidential election, but on an ongoing basis. A lot of that, you know, Russian trolls took America as they found it and used to great effect the algorithms of social media and the digital breadcrumbs that people leave behind in their ordinary interactions online, commercial and social interactions. Um, I guess... There's a question here around the the way in which our information environment is structured is kind of based on information and data harvesting and also to a large extent a bit of manipulation, whether that's commercial actors trying to get you to buy something or watch, you know, and binge watch Netflix, which might be a sensitive issue to some of us facing quarantine at the moment, the way in which the digital ecosystems channel us to do things that maybe our better selves wouldn't want us to do. But you're sitting in the military piece of this. A lot of these things that we're talking about, the business models of internet giants, the tendency of digital technologies to manipulate people, that is not a military thing. That's a social and an economic policy thing. So how do you, as someone sitting in the ADF, reconcile or indeed engage on some of these questions? Because to me, it seems kind of important that we first understand how maybe domestic and legitimate domestic actors, politicians, advertisers use and maybe abuse the information environment. And because one, that sets the conditions for, you know, foreign agents or actors to exploit that. And two, it also creates just the broader information environment in which we operate, which, as you said, has both opportunities, but also vulnerabilities. What's the, what's your approach to consulting or informing or engaging across different portfolios and some of these really tricky um, multi-dimensional issues? Well, well, we all share the same information environment. And so, you know, it's the information environment doesn't recognise whatever stovepipe uh, that uh, that someone might someone might reside in. And it, and it does, from a national security perspective, it certainly dictates a close coordination and a... Uh, uh, and a tight interagency approach, and I think the Australian uh, national security community is 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 pretty good in this regard. I mean, it is clear that the Department of Home Affairs is the policy lead for uh, information environment for for cyber. It is clear that the Australian Signals Directorate, that of course includes the Australian Cyber Security Centre, is the lead agency uh, from a national perspective um, for um, for cyber security. If I'm fully understanding the premise of your question, I, I think we're pretty well linked up from a national security community perspective here uh, in, in Australia. But that said, you know, it's we, we've got to keep at it. Uh, we've got to be diligent to seams between our respective portfolios. Yeah, we've got to be agile because um, the information environment, cyberspace is is changing all the time. I read something recently that there's a there's a new piece of malware on the street every seven to twelve seconds. Um, so in that environment, we've just got to keep talking to each other and keep working with each other. And and, and I think I think we're we're pretty good at that. You mentioned the national security agencies, though. I guess my question was going to, as well, issues of economic policy, social policy, competition policy, some of that broader media policy, some of that broader, softer stuff, which we've never really traditionally thought of and perhaps rightly thought of through a security lens. Is there a need for more kind of cohesion or collaboration across those broader sectors, not just kind of home affairs to ASD to O&I, but... Broad, more broadly, this a whole of 
you know, to use a very hollowed out and, and overused term, but more of a whole of government approach to some of these issues. And how do you sensitively approach that as the defence guys coming into areas which are kind of more traditionally something that defence would not be a part of? Yeah, well, I don't think I don't think that um, national power is uh, is a is a necessarily a foreign concept for departments and agencies beyond the national security community. I mean, I think um, many of your uh, listeners, uh, Catherine, would, would be aware of the dime uh, construct for national power: uh, diplomacy, information, uh, military, economic, um, and, uh, and of course, economic is, is you know there's there's departments of state and agencies that that contribute to that. Uh, military, um, you know, obviously led by the Department of Defence, but but uh, but other other agencies, other departments of state contribute. Diplomacy, clearly, a Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade lead where there's uh, there's clearly a requirement for close interagency uh, collaboration is in the eye with information because we don't have a department of state uh, dedicated to the to the eye in dime so this seems as good as any time to take a break uh, we will be back in just a moment for more about all things information and cyber with major general marcus thompson on the national security podcast Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. You said around the notion of the bushfire and COVID-19 responses that your sense is that there's a great deal of pride in the ADF um, and in those members who are currently um, serving in, in those areas because for the first time in a long time there's a tangible connection between what they're doing and supporting Australians on the home front. And it occurs to me that in the domains of, of cyber and information, these are very much uniquely areas which touch the lives of ordinary citizens. It's the ordinary citizen who, um, you know, if there's a, an attack on critical infrastructure, whose uh, life is seriously disrupted. It's the ordinary citizen who uh, is potentially reading and consuming uh, disinformation that is part of a concerted state-driven campaign and having... Uh, their psychology in some way deliberately exploited. Now, it occurs to me that in some way this is its not new uh, because certainly we've had periods in history before where the home front has been very much uh, a centre of gravity for conflict and competition, but it's a bit different. And for Australians in particular who have, you know, experience of warfare over the last 20 years or even beyond as small wars overseas, which we haven't had much of a personal stake in, is there a need for 
you know, to engage people more on the, the cyber and information issues? And is there a risk that people's expectations, understandings of what war is and what competition and conflict is in the 21st century hasn't yet caught up with this reality that sees them so inextricably linked to it? Yeah. Look, I mean, that, that's a that's a cracking question. I mean, I, I would say that that I have uh, real faith in uh, in the Australian community and uh, in Australian citizens to 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 understand uh, this space. Um, uh, where I've been, uh, one of the one of the other questions. I mean, I, I, I mentioned earlier that one of the key questions I've been asking uh, is about, you know, about the role of the ADF in, um, in 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 this space. One of the other questions I've been asking is like, how do we how do we have sensible public discussions about this because a, a lot of this discussion necessarily and appropriately is is classified and and so can't be routinely uh, shared with the public and and, and I, I think Australians understand that and and respect that as much as as I'm sure thinking people will be curious I mean that's why I'm prepared to do a you know a podcast such as this Catherine so we can be having uh, public discussions, and and we have yeah, we have seen we have seen uh, I think an increase in in that public discussion over the last uh, year or so. You know, the Chief of Defence Force uh, has has made some public comments. Um, the uh, the former Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate, Mike Burgess, uh, now the head of ASIO, had some uh, public engagements uh, last year, um, and I think I think these are all positive outcomes that that encourage Australians to think about these things uh, and to think about what capabilities the nation might require and in what circumstances might those capabilities be used. Let me bring you then to the, the kind of issues of, of lexicon and words in, in this space because a lot of the ways in which, yes, we're seeing more discussion by military and intelligence and national security leaders about a lot of these issues, but a lot of the words that are being used tend to sometimes obscure, in, in at least on, on some views, more than they reveal. So, you know, the, the CDF spoke about political warfare, which is a, it's a complex term that I'm not even entirely sure I understand, and it certainly means different things to different people. Uh, information warfare itself, we touched on at the beginning, it can refer to a grab bag of, in some sense, disparate capabilities and activities. So, and cyber and cybersecurity is famous for uh, the disjunct between the words that those in the techie community might work might use and the words that politicians use to describe certain events and everyday mums and dads might use to describe their activities online now i know that your phd was on lex- lexico- lexicography lexic i don't even know how to pronounce that word can you pronounce that word for me lexicography no, tax, taxonomies and ontology. Taxonomy. So yeah. it was about the meaning of words, I think, and you you built out a kind of some definitions and taxonomies around resilience and cyber concepts. Um, so words obviously matter to you as well. What? How are we doing in terms of Australia? In terms of giving a bit of colour and refinement to all of these new words that we're needing to deal with, from political warfare right down to DDoS attacks and um, hackers, are we there yet? And if not, you know, what's our scorecard looking like? Oh, I think it's a it's a constant struggle, actually. Well, not not a struggle, but it's a it's something we just need to keep talking about and, and refine refine our understanding. I mean, I I took a conscious decision when I came to this job. Uh, three years ago, and that decision has has stuck with. I haven't had cause to change it. I took a deliberate decision 
not to try and define information warfare um, because I did not want uh, to spend two or three or so years arguing over semantics. So what we've done is we've we've described um, and tried to paint a picture of what information warfare is and what information warfare capabilities are. Now, where I've deviated from that is where it's been important for capability and, and policy discussions to aid understanding. So, for example, I, I mean, you, you talked about cybersecurity and language techies use. I mean, I have been, I have been, uh, I've got a great pains to to delineate and distinguish between cybersecurity and cyber operations in much the same way. I mean, you referred to my my doctoral thesis. I went to great pains there to distinguish and delineate between security and resilience. And and so, you know, those two distinctions, security, resilience, cybersecurity, cyber operations, there, there is a relation there. I have a view that security is a binary construct. You know, you're either secure or you're not. Uh, resilience is important after security has failed. It exists on a spectrum. And this is where your minimum standard or minimum quality of, of service or for continuity of operations comes in. And, and it is that piece between you know, security resilience, which 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 maps to that delineation between cybersecurity. You know, what do we do to defend our, ourselves? What do we do from a set and forget, um, you know, network hygiene, things we set and forget. Uh, but whereas cyber operations, of course, is people, is human beings actually conducting activities to counter threat activity or indeed to project force. Where it's been critical for understanding, uh, we have dived in and gone into greater depth with our definitions and, and descriptions. But I, I tell you, I just didn't want to be spending you know, years arguing in Canberra you know, between a word and a sentence and you know, arguing semantics over definitions. That sounds like a good and um, sanity-preserving approach, not least because I assume we'll still be quibbling, at least in the academy, over the definitions of these terms for decades to come. Um, I want to just zoom the lens back out um, even further now and just talk about the difference between the way democracies and more authoritarian-leaning governments experience information warfare and engage in the information contest there is discussion out there that kind of falls into two camps on this. On on one view, democracies, because we are open information systems and tend to be economically and digitally advanced and connected, are quite vulnerable to the tools and tactics of manipulation in the cognitive realm and then cyber attacks in the more technical realm. Um, but on the other hand, democracy is a very resilient system um, to your kind of the, sec- the, the second part of your framework you introduced before, resilient because we have lots of different decentralised actors who can push back against misinformation, who can be brought into the tent to uh, push back against um, hacks and uh, other malicious cyber activities. So, you know, on the first view, information warfare is perhaps democracy's Achilles heel. And on the other view, actually information capabilities and cyber capabilities are democracy's magic weapon because it's something that we may have a natural advantage in. Do you have any reflections on kind of inherent differences between how democracies and authoritarians use information and their respective vulnerabilities in our digitised age? Well, not really. <laughs> quite, quite, quite frankly, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I, I made the point earlier that we all share the same information environment. We all use the same cyberspace, uh, and so, so no matter 
who we are as as individuals, as organisations, uh, as industry sectors, as nations, um, uh, uh, the information environment, cyberspace, uh, presents presents uh, um, threats, vulnerabilities, and opportunities for for all of us. And um, uh, you know how we how we might approach those. Um, those vulnerabilities or, or opportunities is a is a matter for for each entity, for each individual, for each uh, organisation, for each industry sector, or indeed for for each nation. It's a neutral environment. I mean, it's the same operating environment. It's the same cyberspace. It's the same information environment. That's a fascinating insight. I think I take two things from that. The first is that I should be careful of generalisations, and the second is that your observation about uh, all of us sharing the same information environment has given me a potent mental image of all of the world's leaders kind of swimming together in the same swimming pool. Um, So I thank you (laughs) for that uh, mental image, which will stay with me for some time. Um, What unfortunately won't stay with us for all time is this podcast, and we are drawing to the end. The way I want to conclude is to ask you two final questions. Uh, The first is... Uh, a bit of a cheeky question, which is, what's the next cyber? And to add a little bit of meat to that, I suppose we often, uh, all of us throughout history, will always suffer from a bit of presentism. We tend to think that whatever is zeitgeisty and hitting the headlines right now is going to be game-changing and forever something that's going to be causing us grief and is going to be a really key focus for our attention. And at the moment, cyber, disinformation, information is a really key focus for a lot of governments around the world and almost, I'd say, dinner table conversation uh, for a lot of people helped in some part by the popularisation of terms like fake news and misinformation by our friends in America. But if you were to be looking out into the future and thinking about the big threats to Australia's national security or indeed ways to amplify or detract from our national power writ large, where would you be looking that's not necessarily the cyber and information spaces? Uh, Catherine, I, I suspect my crystal ball is in the same condition as yours. If I, if I knew what the next cyber was, I'd be, um, be directing a few dollars to, uh, to, to shares in, uh, in that sector. Um, but look, but I, I will say, I mean, we, none of us really know um, you know, we can really only speculate what, where technology might take us. I mean, we're starting to see some exciting, uh, some exciting developments with uh, artificial intelligence and and machine learning. Um, I mean, although although to be fair, I mean, most of what we see with with artificial intelligence at the moment is is the automation of processes that that were previously manual. If if machine learning really takes off, I mean, the the possibilities are are endless. Now, and that said. I mean, cyberspace is, is quite frankly here to stay. We'll see it continue to expand. And of course, we will see it used for both good purposes and indeed for nefarious purposes. And I don't see the requirement for uh, cyber capabilities from a national security perspective going away anytime soon, both defensive and offensive. I think that, that that's only going to become more and more important and more and more a part of, uh, from a military perspective, more and more part of the contemporary battle space. But I'll tell you what, Catherine, if I, if I have any bright thoughts about where I might put some money in the stock market, I'll let you know. <laughs> 
uh, I'll wait by the phone. Look, that that brings me to my final question, which is more of a, a personal question than a subject matter expert question. And we ask all of our podcast guests this very same question, which is, if you were to reflect over the course of your career, is there a particular moment, a, a career moment, an event, or indeed a particular thing that you might have read or watched or even a podcast that you listen to uh, that particularly influenced you? And if so, would you be so kind as to share it with our listeners? Goodness, there's there's so many so, so many moments, so many artifacts that have that have influenced me uh, over the years, Catherine. But uh, one one comes immediately to mind, and I've 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 cited it extensively. Um, it's a uh, a futuristic uh, action novel uh, written by August Cole and P.W. Singer called Ghost Fleet, um, and it was it was published in. Uh, 2015, and it was at a time when I was really starting to try and get my head around, you know, what might uh, a cyber war look like. Uh, uh, Cole and Singer had produced this this book. Some of it, quite frankly, is is uh, is is absolute science fiction, but other aspects of it really got me thinking. And um, uh, and and that's that's uh, that's a book that I've I've encouraged anyone with a with an interest in. Um, cyber warfare to read Ghost Fleet by August Cole and P.W. Singer. And that dynamic duo has a new book out, I think, in the last month or so, Burn In, which I haven't yet got my hands on. But Ghost Fleet, certainly, I know for a lot of, uh, for us at the NatSec pod and also a lot of our listeners has been also a really impactful book. But I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of uh, dystopia with a silver lining they depict in the next book as well. Yeah. Look, um, anything anything with Singer's name on it is is worth is worth reading. I I, I really enjoyed his book. I think, I think it was from about 2013 called Cyber Security and Cyber Warfare: What Everyone uh, Needs to Know. He wrote that one with, I think it was um, Alan Friedman, and of course his um, uh, Like War that he wrote with with Emerson Brooking, Emerson T. Brooking, uh, which I think was published maybe about two years ago. You know, eighteen months ago is um, is also worth a read. Um, another one recently was uh, David Sanger's book called Perfect Weapon. They've all gone through my hands onto the bookshelf. None of them particularly cheery titles, though, are they? Like <laughs> War, Perfect Weapon. Uh, I'm seeing a trend here, but um, nonetheless, well, 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 you are speaking to a career soldier, Catherine. <laughs> Good, good, good soldiery names, good warry words. Um, look, thank you so much, um, General Thompson, for incredibly candid conversation on the National Security Podcast today. Um, a couple of the things I'll be taking away uh, is this notion of the information environment being something that all of us share. There's not, there's no national borders in the information domain, but it's also something that, you know, a, a ripple over here can have a can create a wave perhaps somewhere else um, and that's a very graphic concept that will stay with me but for today um, thank you very much uh, Marcus Thompson for an incredibly insightful and wide-ranging conversation my pleasure Catherine and thank you very much once again to Major General Marcus Thompson for joining us on the National Security Podcast you can join us too by hitting us up on Twitter we are at Apps Policy Forum and also at Natsec Pod. Uh, you can also join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can use the ye olde personal touch and drop us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Be sure to hit the subscribe button as well and give us a ranking, hopefully a good one, on whatever platform you pod with. And we'll, we will speak to you soon on the next episode of the National Security Podcast.
Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.